You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to our podcast, live from the ABA section of Antitrust Law Spring Meeting 2018. This is Law & Order, What's Going On in the Criminal Cartel Enforcement. And I'm the host for today's episode, which is being recorded on location at the ABA section of Antitrust Law Spring Meeting 2018 in Washington, D.C. Joining me now, I have Lisa Phelan and Niall Lynch. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. Before we get started, please uh, tell a little bit about yourselves to the audience. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, where you work, Lisa, what you do? Lisa, you're chief of the Washington Crim 1 section. That's right. Yes, I'm with DOJ, Department of Justice, the Antitrust Division. I've been with them I'm dating myself here, 31 years. For the last 16 years, I've been chief of, it's been variously named the National Criminal Enforcement Section and the Washington Criminal Enforcement Section. It's basically the largest section of the antitrust division enforcing criminal laws. And I've been involved with international cartel enforcement for over 20 years, traveling all over the world, meeting with enforcers to talk about parallel cases and to share evidence. And I prosecuted some of the largest cartel investigations in recent years, including in the air cargo industry, freight forwarding industry, auto parts industry, and now we're digging into the generic drugs industry. And let me just say before I go forward here that because I'm with DOJ, these are not necessarily the views of the Department of Justice that I'll be expressing today, but my own views based on 31 years of experience. We understand, and thank you for being with us. Our other guest, Niall Lynch, you're a partner at Latham & Watkins after a distinguished career at DOJ, if I remember. Yes. uh, Thank you, Joe. Yeah, my name's Niall Lynch. I'm a partner in the San Francisco office of Latham & Watkins. I've been there for seven years. Prior to that, I was 15 years in the Department of Justice, primarily focused on prosecuting cartel cases. I was a colleague of Lisa's, and I too brought many of the largest uh, cartel cases. And there was a friendly rivalry between me and Lisa as to who brought in the bigger cases, and I was the lead on the DRAM and LCD investigations. But currently, I represent companies and individuals in defending against cartel investigations. Thank you for being with us today. We're here to discuss the latest trends in criminal cartel enforcement in the antitrust arena. Lisa, starting with you, what is the current stance of criminal cartel enforcement? What are some latest trends that you are seeing? Let me just say, as, as a preliminary matter, that we're as busy and active as ever. I like to think that after 31 years of trying to uh, deter this kind of conduct, it would stop, but for good or for bad, it has not. But we continue in our efforts, both nationally and internationally. But I would say one interesting trend that I've noticed over the last few years is sort of a shift in sort of how cartelists are communicating with each other and, and where the best evidence lies in our cases. For decades, the best evidence, or what we like to call the hot documents would typically be found in the email traffic of the different competitors of different companies emailing each other about pricing plans and possible arrangements to get together. But as we all know, the world has sort of moved on in terms of communication uh, tools and social media. And so an interesting thing we've been seeing in the last few years is that a lot of the conspirators, would-be conspirators, are shifting their means of communication. And we're seeing a lot more communication through text messages. A lot of people are obviously obviously constantly on their phones. And if they waited to check their email, it might take them longer or there are places when they can't check it. So it's happening constantly in text messages, but also we're seeing it Facebook messaging to one another. Um, And another sort of dangerous trend 
from um, an enforcer's perspective has been that there's a movement to sort of disappearing apps or places where we can't grab the evidence because it's gone. Things like we'll see uh, cartelists say, suggest to each other, why don't we move on to WhatsApp, which is an app that, that makes the evidence go away, or they're encrypting their communication, um, Snapchat or Instagram, places where it might not continue to exist or it'd be extremely difficult to pull back unless we get an insider who sort of takes us into that space. It's good to know, for us to know where the evidence is, but it's concerning that this is a trend that will make it not only difficult for enforcers, but also for uh, companies um, to, to keep track of what their folks are up to. Thank you. Now, what's your perspective? Well, I'd say from the defense perspective, it's been a little more than a year that the Trump administration has been in place. And I think it's too soon to tell whether there's a change in direction or not. There simply haven't been enough cases. So in terms of whether they're staying the course from the prior decades of active cartel enforcement or going into new directions, I think we have to wait and see. I would say one noteworthy thing, which is a continuation of probably the last year of the Obama administration is that the fines are dramatically down uh, historically. The Before two or three years ago, the DOJ had a decade of, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of fines, sometimes over a billion dollars of fines. They've been dramatically reduced in the last two or three years. And it's hard to know if this is just a temporary lull or a trend. The question that I frequently raise with clients and clients raise with me is whether or not Has the uh, antitrust division been a victim of its own success? Have they stamped out uh, all, at least the most blatant cartels, given the global enforcement uh, regimes that have been put in place? And I think I see some evidence of that. We see fewer examples of really hardcore cartels of the sort of vitamins or ADM type that we saw in the 90s where CEOs got together in rooms and agreed to output restrictions and things of that that nature. I think uh, the low-hanging fruit in the cartel world has been picked, and now the DOJ is focused on harder uh, cases such as information exchange and other types of things like that. But in terms of policies, I would say generally it's more of the same. There's some changes at the margins, which we can get into, but it does still seem to be a priority for the DOJ, even if there aren't as many big blockbuster cases. If I could respond. Um, uh, I would like to think, as I said, that, w- that we'd made some progress, but I got to tell you, the, the documents that are sitting on my desk and, and text messages and, and other, uh, other forms of communication tell me otherwise, tell me that um, it's, uh, unfortunately, collusion is often an easy choice um, and as well as a profitable one, and that companies and executives just continue to do it. We just need to be more creative in finding it. Let me also just add that one nice thing about having worked all these years in criminal antitrust area is that it always enjoys very bipartisan support, and the Trump administration is no different than that. They fully support what we're doing. Uh, the career folks have been doing for years. Um, they're getting us the resources that we need. AAG Delraham is a huge supporter of international cooperation, so that is certainly continuing apace and is always a useful tool in, in ha- detecting the larger cartels. But we really try to balance that. We don't only go after large international cartels that affect had commercial effect. We also go after cartels that maybe are having an effect on government agencies in the U.S. And um, so we, we try to balance what we're doing. And there's no reason to think either from, from, from uh, the sense of how, how many cartels are out there or the effort that we're putting into finding them that this lull in the fines isn't going to just be a temporary 
flow. Is there any other indication that you've seen that the downward trend for fines is a temporary lull? Or Obviously, I can't speak of what's pending, <laughs> and uh, you, you all uh, may not know what's behind the scenes. And typically, a cartel case will take a long time at the covert stage. We, Especially if we have leniency applicants, we may be working with them for months to gather evidence covertly. We may be uh, using other sources of information. And so it is not uncommon, particularly after some large cases like our auto parts case that saw more than 100 defendants prosecuted and obviously billions of dollars in fines. While that worked its way through the system, some other things that were behind it, you know, maybe lacked resources for a little while, now they're catching back up. And so it's it's not uncommon after sort of a behemoth investigation like that goes through to have a, a bit of a time lag until things catch back up. I agree with that. This I think uh, we saw towards the end of the Obama administration a clearing out of major cases and not just the auto parts, but also in the financial services industry. And so to some extent, maybe the pipeline was pretty much dried up by the time Trump started. I'd say the other uh, reason for the lower fines is a increased focus on smaller regional uh, cartel activity, such as the uh, real estate foreclosure cases, which are smaller in volume in terms of uh, actual fine amounts, but the resources they require is quite substantial, particularly since many of them go to trial and there's been a string of trials in which the DOJ has been quite successful, but that takes up a lot of the division's limited resources. One recent trend that has happened, and last week there was an announcement, was regarding no poach and uh, the administration's change of stance from civil to criminal pursuit of actions. However, the announcement last week was a civil case um, and a carve-out in the policy. What can we expect to see happen in the future with no poach, Lisa? Sure. And last week's announcement was actually very consistent with the policy. So traditionally and historically, um, the division had been pursuing no poach. And just to be clear, what no poach is, it's, it's corporations cannot refuse to hire each other. They can't have agreements with each other not to hire each other's employees because that would be a naked per se agreement, just as it would be if there was any other product you were purchasing or selling and you're agreeing on the terms for that. It's clearly a per se offense, and but for whatever reason, historically, it had been pursued civilly. The division felt it wanted to change its position on that to potentially pursue those matters criminally, but it didn't want to suddenly change course without any warning to just bring a criminal case with no one expecting that it might pursue the battle criminally. So in 2016, we announced this change of policy. And what the policy says is, Um, If you had already had such an agreement, but it ended before this announcement of the change of policy, then we would pursue it civilly as we had, sort of grandfathered in to be civil in in that sense. But if you continued that conduct past the date of the announcement of the change of policy, then you were... Uh, should expect that it would be pursued criminally. So what came out last week, what was announced to be a civil matter because the dates of the conduct preceded the announcement of the change in policy. But that is not any indication that going forward, as we find and are pursuing matters that continued beyond the date of the announced policy in 2016, we will be pursuing those criminally. And because it's a criminal matter, Leniency is possibly available, and um, 
companies or individuals can approach us to discuss leniency. And I think this is an area of huge risk for companies. Historically, this has never been prosecuted criminally. And in fact, there's been very few civil prosecutions as well. I mean, this real policy really came out of the series of no poaching cases in the high tech industry over the last five years. And I think probably based on some of the evidence that came up in that case, the division has reassessed uh, whether or not these cases should be prosecuted civilly or criminally. But there's huge risk because this is not conduct that people normally think of as price fixing. They think of it as you know protecting their employees who are a very valued asset and not wanting them to go to um, other uh competitors. And we'll just have to see how this plays out as the cases get filed. We've been hearing a lot from the division and speeches that there's a large number of no poaching cases in the pipeline. They just haven't yet been filed. And to date, there has not been a single criminal no poaching case that's been filed. So we'll have to wait and see. Now, do you think companies are aware about this change in the no poach stance from civil to criminal? Uh, DOJ announced the policy two years ago, and there's been a lot of education efforts for companies and clients. But how many are aware of it. I think some are aware of it and more are becoming aware of it, but it takes time. Uh, Companies are inundated with new compliance policies and not just antitrust. It can be FCPA, money laundering, other types of uh, environmental laws. And so this is just adding another compliance issue on the pile of other compliance issues that they have to deal with. And I think not until the DOJ starts actually prosecuting people and companies will the message really uh, come through. And it just takes time, just like any forms of antitrust compliance training. Another big policy announcement that happened uh, last year was DOJ in criminal matters pursuing damages, where government agencies are one of the entities that paid a higher price for products. What can we expect to see with that going forward, Lisa? Sure. Um, I think we can all agree that if taxpayers who ultimately pay for all government services, right, if they're being ripped off because companies are colluding when they bid to the government on large contracts, you know, that's something that should be compensated. The division should pursue aggressively all ways to make sure that that compensation has happened. Now, historically, the way, some of the ways we have done that is by uh, seeking restitution in our criminal cases that involve collusion to government agencies. In other cases, sometimes the uh, civil division of the Department of Justice has pursued False Claims Act cases to try to recompense some of that some of that money that's been taken. Our current AAG would like us to uh, consider more frequently using Section 4A of the Clayton Act, which allows for treble damages in the case of collusion to um, to the government agencies. And so we're we're taking a close look at the best ways to do that. And I think that people need to assume going forward that that'll definitely be a tool uh, that we'll, we may be utilizing in, in cases that involve uh, collusion affecting the government. Because it's under Clayton Section 4, would leniency applicants be subject to, uh, successful leniency applicants, be subject to the trouble damages aspect? Well, they'd still be responsible as the leniency program has always had you know, compensation to victims as a, as a uh, requirement and criteria, but they would not be subject to treble damages. We would give leniency applicants single damages, um, much as they're uh, entitled to in ACPARA in um, civil class action suits. We're, we do not think that pursuing these sorts of damages should be any deterrent to a leniency applicant. I think there are a lot of problems with this proposal. We will have to see how it's enforced and how it rolls out because it is a new policy. 
but I think it's fraught with danger for the Department of Justice. Historically, the Department of Justice uh, in cartel cases has only used its criminal tools and criminal fines or jail terms to enforce the competition laws. They've not ventured into the area of restitution, either with private parties or with government entities, and in many instances have relied on either private plaintiffs to seek trouble damages and civil follow-on class action or opt-out claims, or where the government isn't uh, a victim, they've really relied on the civil division. Civil division has a long history of seeking compensation for the government when it's been harmed, even in antitrust violations or in other types of criminal harm, such as embezzlement or overcharging or other types of claims that can be made under the False Claims Act. So I think the civil division is well-situated to handle these types of cases. They do it every day. They're practiced. They have experience with it. And I think this would be a huge drain on the antitrust division's limited resources if while they're simultaneously negotiating a guilty plea, they're also trying to work out what is the appropriate uh, restitution to a government agency. I think that's going to slow things down dramatically. I don't think the antitrust division is necessarily well-situated to do this. They can certainly be trained to do it, but they aren't currently experienced in this area. So I think it's a real danger, but we'll just, again, have to wait and see. And if I could just clarify, the division has at times sought restitution in its cases, but but Niall's right. In the in the majority of cases, we have um, relied on the fact that there were major class action suits filed almost immediately once our investigations are public and assumed that those would, would capture the damage. Has the division decided whether... Um the trouble damages aspect would be for cases going forward or for cases uh, currently in the pipeline as well, or has that decision not been reached? Uh, that decision has not been reached, but I would think um, there would be no reason why it couldn't apply for cases that are in the pipeline currently. One area that we haven't touched on yet is uh, international antitrust cartel enforcement. Antitrust is no longer just a U.S. Uh, purview, and a lot of the cartel cases in the past several decades have been international cartel matters and and utilized cooperation significantly. Lisa, where do you see that trend going uh, in the Trump administration in the future? Well, as, as I said, our current leader, uh, AAG Delraham, is, is uh, very much a fan of uh, close international cooperation. And so I expect that trend to continue. We, um, we meet regularly in forums such as the International Competition Network and um, the ABA, of course, puts on conferences all over the world, including the International Cartel Workshop. And so we have always worked closely with and coordinated with our counterparts, myself in a lot of the major international investigations like air cargo and freight forwarders and auto parts. We have often done simultaneous raids um, while we're doing search warrants in the U.S., uh, the EU is doing um, uh, dawn raids there. They're happening in Japan. They're happening in Korea. So we have a long history of coordinating closely on um, on parallel investigations. Oftentimes, a leniency applicant will come into, I've had as many as 12 different jurisdictions involved in parallel investigations of the same conduct. So we become almost a mini State Department on the phone at all hours of the night um, coordinating with our counterparts. So um, given the economy, as global as it is, I can't see that uh, pattern changing. And so I have every reason to think that will keep up a pace, if not increase, over time. Last, last year, there was a case, United States v. Allen, which um, dealt with international cooperation and put some additional sort of uh, restrictions or, or situations where the U.S. DOJ can't use evidence from 
some of our international collaborators. Uh, do you see that impacting cases going forward? Yeah, well, that's certainly a bit of a cautionary tale. 25 years ago, when I first started investigating international cartel cases and coordinating with other jurisdictions, you know, I realized over time as those cases played out and got to the stages of litigation and trials that, you know, when you're coordinating with your counterparts, you sort of tend to assume that they have similar laws, they have similar rights, they have similar best practices for pursuing cartel cases, and then find to your detriment that perhaps they don't. <laughs> um, you know, and they, of course, at the same time, we're assuming our systems and our processes were the same. And so you don't know what you don't know. And so you don't even know to ask the question or, or to um, raise the issue and then find out sometimes in an unfortunate way that um, that, that there's a problem uh, by the way that they gather evidence or the way they question witnesses or the rights that they afford that it could create a problem for that evidence being admissible in our jurisdiction. Um, so I think the Allen situation highlights that and um, I don't think it will cause any um, diminution or deterrence from agencies coordinating with one another, but it certainly will remind everyone to really think hard before you take possession of evidence that was perhaps obtained under different circumstances than we would be obtaining in the United States, to think hard about that and to ask all the detailed questions about the system and the terms before we take possession of foreign developed evidence. I think Alan is a real problem for the government, and uh, it was obviously a problem in that prosecution because it really upended it. The question I have is, what other current investigations have already crossed the line? What current investigations do prosecutors already have in their possession uh, improperly obtained evidence in another jurisdiction? So that's a real headache for the Department of Justice. I think going forward, it will chill to some extent international cooperation. I think the DOJ will be cautious in what they take from another jurisdiction, as Lisa was saying, and they won't want to take possession of documents or interview reports or things of that nature. I do think they will continue to coordinate on the timing of search warrants and dawn raids <clears throat> as they've done in the past. And so I expect that to continue. I think a bigger issue on international cooperation is after two decades of the DOJ proselytizing and preaching the benefits of international cartel enforcement around the globe and even international cartel criminal enforcement, uh, they're finding that there are some unintended consequences. Different jurisdictions are going in different directions. They're not necessarily aligned with what the DOJ is doing. Companies are finding that certain jurisdictions are more hostile to cooperating companies, including leniency applicants, which is causing them not to want to go into various jurisdictions, which is in some instances also causing them to be cautious about going into the DOJ. So I think the ICN should be used to uh, reach greater convergence among the various agencies. So they're all sort of reading from the same playbook, and there's some consistency and transparency in international enforcement. Well, I mean, of course, that's a key purpose of the ICN, and that certainly is is a goal of the U.S. Um, to try to reach as much convergence as possible, and, and I think we're continually making progress in that area. That said, each country is its own sovereign and, and has a right to have its own rules and laws. But yeah, absolutely, we, we want to, will continue to, and, and expect to continue to make progress, reaching more convergence so that it is not as um, inconsistent or complicated for, um, for uh, companies to to deal with a cartel problem in multiple jurisdictions. 
are either of you seeing a decrease in the amount of international cartels versus domestic? Now, earlier you mentioned DOJ's increased enforcement in real estate cases, which are focused domestically and internal to the United States. I would say the common wisdom among the defense bar is that we are saying seeing a significant decrease in the number of international cartel investigations. And I don't know if it's because uh, the enforcers have been so successful or if it's because they've become more hostile or the uh, obligations of leniency have become more onerous. But I think if you look at the raw numbers, there are far fewer international cartel investigations than there have been in the past. Um, I would say uh, you all don't know what you don't know, (laughs) and I can't tell you, but, um, you know, oftentimes we have investigations that are covert for long periods of time. But um, it, it is absolutely true that the division did choose to devote a significant amount of resources to the real estate auction cases for a period of time. And as I said, oftentimes we also like to focus on potential harm to U.S. government agencies. And, you know, there are only so many resources, but I would like to think that we've had some deterrent effect in the international space, but I would say stay tuned. Time will tell. (laughs) You're not out of a job yet. (laughs) Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. I want to thank our guests, Lisa and Niall, uh, for joining us today. If our listeners have questions or wish wish to reach you, um, how can they do that? I'll go first. Um, So I am a partner at Latham & Watkins. Uh, You can reach me on my website, LinkedIn, or you can email me directly at nile.lynch at lw.com, and that's N-I-A-L-L dot L-Y-N-C-H at lw.com. And I am with the Department of Justice, so I have that usual DOJ address, lisa.phelan at usdoj.gov. And your contact information uh, for your section is online as well. That's right. This concludes another podcast from ABA section of Antitrust Law Spring Meeting 2018. If you like what you heard, please find us and rate us in Apple Podcasts. I'm Joe Vardner. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.